Welcome to Session 7 of the 4th World Sepsis Congress, an intriguing panel debate on the benefits of multidisciplinary teams in sepsis care on the healthcare facility level. This session is featuring a wonderful lineup of panelists and was moderated by Karn Cliff from Ireland. Karn, take it away. Good morning, everybody. My name is Karn Cliff. I'm the Director of Nursing and Midwifery with the Dublin Midlands Hospital Group in Ireland. Um, I have been involved with the National Sepsis Programme since its inception in 2016. I'm very pleased to be welcoming everybody here this morning um, across our, our worldwide audience and, of course, our speakers. We've got some excellent speakers co coming up. Um, first off, I'd like to thank our, our sponsors for this in, in, entire um, session, um, specifically and, and the yesterday and, and today as well. Um, first off, I'll introduce uh, Dr. Yazin Arabi. Um, Dr. Arabi obtained his internal medicine training when he was a chief, um, then rather he was a chief medical resident at Wayne State University, Detroit, USA. He obtained pulmonary and critical care training at the University of Wisconsin-Madison, USA. He is currently the chairman of the intensive care department, the medical director, respiratory services and professor and King Saad bin Abdulazi University for Health Sciences, King Abdullah International Medical Research Center. He's currently the principal investigator, co-investigator in several multi-center randomized control trials. He has been involved in MERS and COVID-19 research. He's over 450 publications, including articles in leading medical journals. He's currently a section editor for intensive care medicine on editorial boards of several journals and he received multiple grants and awards including the Barry A. Shapiro Memorial Award for Excellence in Critical Care Management Society of Critical Care Medicine USA 2011. Um, Dr. Arby, a very good morning to you. Good morning, thank you very much for the kind introduction. <laughs> You're welcome. So um, Thank you for the opportunity to talk about the multidisciplinary approach in managing sepsis. So um, I'll give a three-minute highlight. Um, as we know, sepsis is a medical emergency. We like to think about uh, how sepsis progress from infection, starting local infection, then uh, progressing to sepsis, septic shock, and multi-organ failure, and death. And uh, I think the major opportunities for improvement in uh, the care of sepsis rely on understanding where delays happen. The delay in recognition and delay in treatment are the key areas where we should be focusing. And studies after studies have shown that each one hour delay of appropriate antibiotics, for example, uh, is associated with uh, an increase in mortality, could be 8% plus minus, but certainly delay in providing care um, is essential. Now, this is um, a study where we did failure mode effect analysis, trying to predict where failures can happen in managing sepsis. And, and there are three areas, uh, recognition of uh, patients with sepsis, referring patients with sepsis, and resuscitating patient sepsis are the major um, high-level uh, steps. And underneath this, there are small steps uh, that probably differ slightly from one setting to the other, 
But uh, without going through all these details here, I think one would quickly recognize that these steps are multidisciplinary. They're, they involve physician, they involve nurse, they involve pharmacy, they involve the primary team, they could involve surgeons, they could involve radiologists, etc. And without uh, addressing the multidisciplinary approach to sepsis, we would not be able to reach um, uh, the ideal care for patients with sepsis. A few years ago, um, we, de we developed a sepsis alert system in our electronic medical records. And patients who met the criteria for SIRS at that time would have the pop-up message that is shown on the, um, on the upper left, um, where uh, the, the team will see that the patient met these criteria and will call for a physician to see the patient. And what you could see on the right side, the, these run charts showed that the compliance on the upper panel, the compliance with the sepsis bundle at the time, this is, was in 2015, was around 20% when we started. And soon after we implemented this, it increased to around, around 50%. But then we took it to an, a phase two of the intervention where we had a multidisciplinary sepsis team that consisted of a, a nurse and a physician who are paged when the sepsis alert uh, comes through. And by having this, the compliance increased to around 80, 80% plus. And what's interesting in the bottom here is what happened to mortality. And you could see that the mortality was of the patient with sepsis who were referred to the intensive care department were running around 50%, but with, the, with these implementations, the, the mortality has dropped substantially to around 17%. Now, um, certainly part of this improvement was related to the early recognition intervention. There may be other reasons that uh, maybe you are identifying some um, um, lighter cases or softer cases. I think that can happen, but uh, uh, there's no doubt that there is a process of care improved and there is a reduction of mortality. We went further and we are now uh, for like several years in what's called screen project where we developed electronic alert system um, based on the QSOFA. And, and this alert goes to the bedside nurse in the work, workflow and to the primary medical team and also to the charge nurse on a mobile device. And then the data is fed to a dashboard where people can see the performance of their units. And what we are hoping uh, that the alert will prompt the medical and nursing team to assist the patient. At the end of the day, this is what matters, is getting physicians and nurses. And this is what happened in terms of, well, as we implement this team, and this across five hospitals in Saudi Arabia that has shared the same electronic medical record. There's uh, the acknowledgement time of the nurse once the alert has to acknowledge that he or she I've seen the alert, it dropped from around half an hour to a few minutes and certain some words like in two minutes. So really brought the attention to the nurses. For the physicians, we started off with uh, several hours until the physician acknowledged in the system that he assessed this, uh, the, assessed the patient and it dropped to, now dropped dramatically to around one hour. Uh, we like to make it even lower, but it, it really reduced. And in certain words, 
like this particular word and this data is from the dashboard, it dropped so dramatic from nine hours to less than 30 minutes, which is our target. So by using uh, a multidisciplinary and using IT uh, solutions as well, it helps getting the multidisciplinary team to the bedside to assist the patient. And one last slide is to just to remind ourselves that um, and as I am an ICU physician and the literature of sepsis has focused a lot on the care of patients with sepsis in the ICU. And certainly we can improve the patients, uh, the, care, the outcome patients by focusing on the care within the ICU. But I think that's not enough. I think we need to think about the pre-ICU setting because early recognition and timely management and prevention, even prevention of patients from getting sepsis uh, would probably lead to even bigger improvements in care. Let's not also forget about post-ICU care. The, so it's no good that you, uh, you spend so much uh, effort and energy on taking care of the patient and then he moves to the ward and the care is not transitioned properly, no handover, et cetera. And then uh, things go wrong because there was no continuity of care. Let's focus also on the transition of care, rehabilitation. I'm going to hear about this later in the session. But the care of sepsis should start much earlier, really in the community. Uh, vaccination, patient information when they should seek um, care. We know our oncology colleagues do a very good job on this. When patients start to have fever, etc., they should seek uh, attention, but we should do it for many patients at risk. And let's think about the community post-discharge. Again, rehabilitation, post-discharge of septic patients. With this, I conclude and uh, thank you. Thank you. We will have you back for the uh, panel discussion afterwards. Can I introduce uh, Dr. Marvin Mathundu, um, please? So Marvin is a director of REACT Africa, um, a member of REACT's global leadership team. He provides countries with technical assistance on national action plans development and implementation, including regional bodies, and works closely with the tripartite organizations and regional economic communities. His expertise of over 20 years includes pharmaceutical supply chain management, infectious disease, and antimicrobial resistance, global health security, global One Health, international health policy and diplomacy. He's always on the lookout for new partnerships and collaborations and works hard to get antimicrobial resistance on the global and African agenda. He sits on several boards, including the Surveillance and Epidemiology of Drug Resistance Infections Consortium Board. He is a co-co-chair of the External Advisory Board of the Newton AMR Drug Discovery Program and an honorary fellow at the University of KwaZulu Natal in South Africa, among others. Um, good morning, Dr. Mervyn Mcundu. Good morning, and uh, uh, thank Hi. you so much for the invitation. Uh, yeah, no, thank you so much. I'll, I'll just continue on um, uh, on where actually my esteemed colleague left. Indeed, sepsis uh, is a syndromic response to infection, and is frequently a final a final common pathway to death from uh, uh, many infectious uh, uh, diseases. I I primarily work in the Southern African. Uh, um, in sub-Saharan African um, uh, region where we do have uh, uh, a very high burden of infectious uh, uh, um, 
uh, diseases. And we know that CDC, for example, estimates that at least 30% of antibiotics are prescribed in outpatient settings uh, are necessary and contributes to antimicrobial uh, resistance. In most of the low and middle income countries where I work, you can be able to afford to buy um, antibiotics without a prescription and you can get even infusions uh, in places uh, where they should not be administered. And so the clear facts actually make it clear that really a multifaceted approach and challenge is what we are, are dealing with. Uh, so overuse and misuse of antibiotics uh, uh, really is the major driver of antimicrobial resistance. So uh, 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 there is this dangerous uh, uh, relationship uh, that demands that status improvement programs and antimicrobial stewardship programs work hand in hand. And so really, um, a collaboration among clinical teams with the support of proven and integrated uh, um, clinical surveillance care, reduce care variation and costs while improving patient outcomes um, for these life-threatening uh, uh, concerns. Uh, there are primarily two main steps that uh, we have to address. I think one is prevention of microbial transmissions uh, that reduces the burden of using antibiotics, but also infections. And secondly, it's to prevent uh, uh, the progression and the evolving into, um, into sepsis. Uh, some preventive uh, mechanisms of infection really involves really hand uh, uh, effective hand hygiene practices, uh, such as hand washing and safe preparation of food, uh, improving uh, really sanitation and water quality, but also availability and providing access to vaccines and particularly to those that are at high risk as well as uh, appropriate nutrition, including uh, uh, breastfeeding of newborns. Uh, prevention of infections in healthcare settings uh, is key. Mainly, it relies on having a functional uh, you know, uh, infection prevention and control programs and teams, but also effective, effective hygiene practices and precautions, including hand hygiene, along with others. Uh, prevention of the evolution of sepsis uh, in both community and healthcare settings uh, uh, requires appropriate antibiotic treatment uh, uh, of infections, including reassessment for optimization and prompt seeking on medical uh, care. Why should we invest in antimicrobial stewardship uh, in low and middle income countries? Uh, uh, AMS and sepsis uh, uh, management are interdependent and complementary approaches to infection uh, management um, is key and effective AMS can help to reduce the incidence of sepsis, but also you know, um, a well effective release uh, management of sepsis uh, uh, requires appropriate antibiotic use and stewardship. Uh, the solutions of stewardship are not that complex, but they are a challenge in uh, low and middle income countries. Uh, you know, and there are so many challenges um, around really. Uh, implementing stewardship programs. I'll just mention a few um, as a start. At the national level, uh, lack of policies, a national framework of antimicrobial stewardship can be a challenge. Lack of a professional institutional commitments, weak AMS governance uh, uh, structures, uh, lack of treatment guidelines. I go to a lot of facilities in the African region and guidelines are not in place. At institutional level, lack of funding, I mean, poor uh, poor awareness of AMS usefulness by staff. It is regarded as an additional responsibility, as not and not as uh, you know uh, the way we should treat actually.
the uh, 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 patients. Lack of ITC infrastructure, no really committees that focus on stewardship, lack of staff, lack of leadership, but also weak and lack of uh, uh, diagnostic capacities, uh, limited microbiology lab, uh, stockouts of consumables, lack of uh, human resources, uh, SOPs, quality assurance programs, but also lack of um, a quality assured antimicrobials. It's very common that the 10 most common antibiotics are very, very basic. And we have more patients, unfortunately, in the African region and other LIMCs that are dying from lack of access um, than actually access itself. And so these are some of the areas where we really have to link actually sepsis um, and actually antimicrobial resistance and see how in addressing antimicrobial resistance, we can, we can actually prevent bad outcomes like sepsis. Thank you. Uh, thank you very much. Um, that's a very in, insightful talking. Um, we'll, we'll keep going, uh, Dr. Mpimbu, if that's okay, and we'll come back to you for the panel di discussion. So I'll introduce um, Dr. Amanda Harley now. Um, Amanda is a Queensland statewide pediatric sepsis clinical nurse consultant and the first in Australia. Um, Amanda is the Pediatric Nursing Representative on Queensland Sepsis Steering Committee, a member of the National Sepsis Clinical Reference Group, and the Australian Pediatric and Nursing Representative for Global Sepsis Alliance Platform. Amanda has her Master's in Critical Care, Postgraduate Qualification in Education and PhD. Her PhD investigated recognition and management of pediatric sepsis in the ED. Her current role has her involved in the development, implementation, education and evaluation of a statewide pediatric sepsis pathway. Amanda was the study coordinator for pediatric sepsis randomized controlled trial respond investigating a flute sparing algorithm. She has inst instigated a number of sepsis projects and is the recipient of multiple grants. Amanda is passionate about sepsis recognition and the roles nurses play. By undertaking clinical practice with research and quality improvement, she is encouraging others to do the same. Welcome, Amanda. Thank you very much. Thank you for having me. Thank you for the invitation and welcome to everyone online that's joined our session. Uh, good evening and good morning wherever you are. So this afternoon I'm going to talk to you about um, the sepsis nurse, a voice to lead and transform care. Now usually my first message is always, could this be sepsis? But tonight my message is a little bit different. Tonight my message is about empowerment as when I reflect this is one of the key elements for me as a, as a clinical nurse um, involved in research as well as in quality improvement and was a key ingredient to what can be really, really important. So when you ask yourself, what am I capable of? What change do I want to implement? This is the beauty of being a clinician, being a member of the multidisciplinary team and being a nurse. You don't know where it's going to take you. It's a journey of curiosity and continual growth and development and that's a really exciting role to be in. So leading and transforming care comes in many different shapes and sizes and tonight I'm going to share with you some that are pertinent to sepsis nurses working within the multidisciplinary team. Now, gone are the days with medics versus nurses and these archaic hierarchies. I've always been very fortunate to work in a multidisciplinary team that provides and values each member, um, appreciates the differing role and the individual contributions they make. But what role does the nurse play in this? In the last seven years, a lot has changed in sepsis research and a lot has changed in the role of nurses towards sepsis recognition and management. 
So be empowered to lead, be empowered to trust your discipline, speak up and make a difference to your facility. Make it a priority and know that nurses bring a different set of skills to sepsis care. In fact, a lot of successful sepsis initiatives have come from nurses leading the way. In Queensland, we implemented a statewide pathway in the state of Queensland over in Australia, um, and it was across 14 mixed population emergency departments. The focus was on nursing empowerment to recognise and escalate patients with suspected sepsis early on in their journey, knowing this was an identified gap in practice and an area that really required improvement. The pathway aligned with our early warning system and provided a scaffold for raising the question, could this be sepsis? It was medical and nursing-led, but each side had dedicated nurse champions where available that initiated, educated and evaluated computation. So to improve knowledge and critical thinking skills, we really took education and, and flipped it on its head. We designed tailored education sessions throughout the state aiming to really raise awareness and educate creatively to promote that engagement during and after the implementation. Nurses were the key people that were responsible for this. So with that being said, I ask you the question, what gives you the drive? What gives you the drive to attend these sessions? What gives you the drive for your professional development to want to improve the care that we deliver to our sepsis patients in whichever country that we're in? Identify that and lean into it. So I found an area I could make a real difference in. And since that moment, there's been several publications and grants awarded. And I really had a realisation that as nurses, we possess a wide range of skills, knowledge and professional capacity. These are all the ways that nurses can lead and transform care. The nursing expertise and repertoires that nurses have has allowed, for in this case, to um, design contextually appropriate education that can be delivered across the state and the nation and really to develop resources for sustainability, knowing that this is a long game and not a short game. There's a broad range of skills that have been developed that have been beneficial to frontline clinicians, including involvements in guideline, clinical care standard development, uh, root cause analysis reviews, community awareness campaigns, and the development of a statewide website and online learning modules that are accessible um, wherever you are. So I'll leave you with this. Where will your journey take you? Our role is critical in the clinical setting, but it is also imperative that we advance our leadership capabilities in quality improvement and nurse research-led initiatives. You have a great opportunity to lead and transform care for patients with sepsis. So where will you go? Thank you. Thanks, Amanda. We'll um, catch up with you again in the, the panel discussion. <laughs> Thanks. Um, introducing um, Mr. Kowaldi Simi, uh, CEO International Alliance of Patients Organization. Um, Kowaldeep is the Chief Executive Officer of the International Alliance of Patients Organization. He has an academic background in public health and law and has a passionate belief in improving access to services through digital health and justice services. As the Managing Director of the International Children's Legal Centre, he led a team of international lawyers improving the rights of the child, including right to health, by applying remote courts. He has also served as the Chief Executive Officer of an international mental health charity, specialising in niche mental health services, supporting young people and adults with complex mental health, personality disorder and substance misuse problems, access telehealth and digital, digital, pardon me, digital mental health services. 
Kualdip is a passionate advocate of the WHO's human rights-based approaches to health and strengthening of the institutional, legislative, policy practice and standards framework. He believes this support is needed to achieve the health goals outlined in the Sustainable Development Goals 2030, specifically Sustainable Goal 3.8, to ensure universal health coverage for all. Welcome. Good morning, everybody. Thank you. Good morning. Right. Uh, thank you very much. Uh, I'm on. Uh, yes, uh, I'll start off by saying that uh, the past uh, three years has been a spectacular once-in-a-lifetime experience for us all in that this is a pandemic that we had never encountered in living memories in the sense that, yes, we have heard of all things in ancient documents, but this is something in our lifetime. And I think that what has been taught to us that we cannot ignore uh, infections that we all thought uh, infections were over and done with and uh, that we were all concentrating on NCDs. And I think this has brought back the focus that um, uh, infections are here to stay. But also I think it's given us a great room to look at patient safety, global patient safety. Uh, we are part of WHO and we're really pushing forward the global patient safety action plan on sepsis, in particular infections and hospital-acquired infections. And it's important for us to realize that this is a moment that we can transform our healthcare uh, in ensuring that we become sepsis-free in a way. You know, if you've got people trained up to pick it up, diagnose it, and treat it, it would be great to have that in our uh, under our belt. We are going towards universal health coverage uh, 2030 shortly, I suppose, in another seven, and seven years or so. And we must be ready for that. Make sure that those things that we can take care of, you know, what I call that extra burden on healthcare, which is uh, unnecessary. This is avoidable burden. Let's remove them. And that's where we come in that taking sepsis out of our healthcare will require the whole of government, the uh, whole of uh, patient community all of industry, and maybe even much further than that, uh, we're looking at the whole of society to work with us. That is not uh, anybody, single person's problem, it's the whole of society's problem. Thank you. Thanks very much. Um, again, we'll, we'll catch up with you in the panel discussion, if, if that's okay. So I'll introduce Dr. Mohammed Chadir Alatwi. Um, pardon my Irish brogue and the pronunciation if I got that wrong, highly qualified and experienced uh, physicist who has made significant contributions to the field of physical medicine and rehabilitation. He obtained his Bachelor of Medicine and Bachelor of Surgery from King Saud University in Riyadh, Saudi Arabia, and became board certified in physical medicine and rehabilitation in 2015. He later went on to complete a subspeciality in concussion and traumatic brain injury from the University of Toronto. Currently, Dr. Alatwi serves as the chairperson of physical medicine and rehabilitation department at King Fahad Medical Center and is the medical director of the spasticity and baclofen pump program at the rehabilitation hospital. Additionally, he serves as the director of the PM&R program in the shared training committee sector one of the Saudi Commission for Health Specialities. He's certified brain injury specialist trainer from the academic 
Academy of Certified Brain Injury Specialists and a member of the National Health Registry for People with Disabilities in Saudi Arabia, as well as the Canadian Association of Physical Medicine and Rehabilitation and the American Academy of Physical Medicine and Rehabilitation. Dr. Alatri has played a key role in the establishment of a new acute intensive rehabilitation program for trauma patients in a tertiary center in Riyadh, Saudi Arabia. He's also published and participated in research related to brain injury, concussion, and disabilities. As a founding member of the Saudi Society of Physical Medicine Rehabilitation, he's committed to advancing the field and improving the lives of patients. You're very welcome. Uh, thank you for the introduction and for inviting me today and to have this opportunity to talk about the early rehabilitation uh, and sepsis and ICU patient. Actually, just I will talk briefly about what the early rehab, what the benefit of early rehab in patient uh, um, and uh, what the effect of healthcare uh, facility with the early rehabilitation. Okay, um, as a definition, actually, at the beginning, let's define the early rehab. There are multiple definitions in literature about the early rehab, but the common one is the uh, early rehabilitation in ICU for sepsis referred to the initiation of physical, occupational, and speech therapy intervention as soon as possible after patient admitted to ICU and stabilized by the medical team. As well, we have early mobilization, not only early rehab, early mobilization is the application of physical activity as early, sometime in the second or fifth day after the onset of the critical illness. Um, why we are talking and about the early rehab in ICU and sepsis, why we need early rehab? Actually, with the advance in medical care, more patients are surviving post-critical illness. For example, in the United States, more than 1.4 million survival critical illness, and most of those patients end up with long-term physical and cognitive impairment. As well, the sepsis affect more than 1.7 million people in the United States. Um, you know, in ICU, the patients stay in the bed for a time and immobility can affect the patient system, including respiratory, cardiovascular, pulmonary, musculoskeletal. And some study show that the muscle strength in healthy person can decrease by 1.3 to 3% for every day spent in the bed rest. And new studies suggest that 3% to 11% strength loss cure for every day in the bed in the ICU setting. Let's imagine, this is the sometimes the only view for patient in ICU, which affect the patient psychologically and can trigger the cognitive impairment as well agitation because that we are talking about the early rehab. Um, the goals uh, for early rehab in ICU and the sepsis mainly uh, to promote functional recovery, decrease duration for mechanical ventilation, reduce the length of ICU and hospital stay, and improve the quality of life of patient after discharge as well. 
just to uh, know the difference between early and standard rehab intervention in ICU and for sepsis patient. The early intervention is the therapist reviewed chart for all patients, and it is therapist-driven BTOT consult and patient seen directly after admission in ICU for assessment. And there is daily morning round with the medical team to discuss the medical stability and the therapy frequency five to seven days per week. The standard rehab intervention is physician-driven BTOT consult and the therapy review only the patient chart who has received a referral and they hold the BTOT program if medically unstable as the bare hospital criteria and the therapy frequency is one to three times a week. What the difficulty and barrier for uh, rehab and early rehab in sepsis and ICU patient? Actually, the ICU and sepsis patient have uh, sometimes the medical situation, multiple line machine connected to the patient and risk for complication because that we need trained therapist, trained uh, respiratory therapist, as well trained rehab team to deal with the patient. There is multiple study talking about early rehab in ICU and the benefit for sepsis patient. Example, one study done in Japan and the conclusion uh, stated that starting rehabilitation within three days of ICU admission was associated with the shorter duration uh, um, uh, in future hospitalization and lower healthcare costs. Other uh, studies show that rehabilitation decreased the incident of pulmonary complication if done by specialized physical therapy in ICU. Um, here as well, uh, article from Journal of Acute Care Physical Therapy about the benefit of early intensive rehab for patients with sepsis. And the results show the improvement in length of stay, mobility, as well discharge disposition. Another article is pilot and randomized control trial about the early physical rehab in ICU patient. And the results show that uh, early intervention by rehabilitation team can increase ventilator-free days, improve peripheral and respiratory strength, reduce length of ICU and hospital stay uh, uh, in the hospital. Um, here, uh, I will talk about our experience. We started a program named Let's Walk in ICU for Critically Ill Patient by Physical Therapy Department in our rehabilitation hospital in King Fahad Medical City, and it started in 2021. And we have a pathway for assessment and categorize the patient in three groups. Uh, the patient, uh, if the patient medically stable, ambulatory patient out of bed activity as well bed activity. Um, um, we educate and train 120 ICU nurses. As you know, the nurses is the cornerstone uh, staff member or team member in ICU. And we trained all the nurses for safety transfer patient for mobilization program. And by quarter four in 2021, we have 100% training for respiratory therapists as well uh, uh, nurses in ICU. Here is example, even we start our program for ECMO patient, we start to mobilize the patient in ECMO machine and uh, we have a good result for our program. Uh, the result of our program rehab, we notice improving the functional outcome of early mobility group by more than two in ICU mobility scale between admission and before transfer out from ICU. As well, the average length of stay is decreased in the quarter 3-2021 by 0.5 day and in quarter uh, 
2022 by 1.7 uh, days. Um, just estimated cost reduction, if we consider the ICU bid cost is 14,000 Saudi Riyal per day, the cost reduced by 2.8 million in quarter one by starting early rehabilitation program. In another tertiary center, um, we start acute intensive uh, rehab for trauma patient as well critically ill patient. And we assign physiatrists and ICU and trauma team as well with the neurology and neurosurgery team. We did a great job by starting rehab uh, early. And this is just our observational for trauma and ICU for acute intensive rehab program. The discharge destination one year before and after the program, the discharge destination uh, to home was increased by from 24% to 64%. Um, at the end, I would like just to show you this slide. Actually, this is a cake, well-prepared, perfect ingredient and mixed very well by all team members in ICU. But without the oven, we cannot get this result and rehab make different. Thank you. Thanks very much. Um, I'll welcome all our, our speakers back again for the panel discussion. And there are there are a few questions come in. So the the first part uh, question is for um, Murfin. What is the impact of health facilities in lower middle income countries putting efforts into antimicrobial stewardship if there is no national regulation and registration of pharmacies, doctors, and prescribing? Yeah. When we look at um, low and middle income countries, we we have a tendency to to bunch every country in there. But actually, even amongst the countries themselves, uh, uh, clinical practice is different. Um, but the, the challenges that are faced by these countries um, are actually quite common. And um, uh, so, so, for example, you know, um, some of the challenges that one is going to see in um, most of the major cities, including the capital cities, is that one in three hospitals um, is not going to have a steady, uh, clean and safe running water. That's just what it is. And so, you know, that becomes um, really a challenge if mm. you really want to implement uh, a good actually IPC program or or prevent actually health associated uh, you know um, uh, I would say infections. Uh, the other the other common among us, so many of these uh, um, these hospitals has to do with um, you know the the uh, the chronic stockouts um, of so many I mean basic and common antibiotics. That's quite common. Uh, when we look at um, and say that you know, you know, amongst all these problems, yeah, there are there are few institutions uh, that are striving and are trying to implement uh, actually stewardship programs, including IPC. But in a generic sense, there are a lot of challenges uh, that um, you know, even the ones trying. Uh, um, are going to face the structural ones, uh, you know, the the lab issues, uh, 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 the issues of actually, you know, uh, you know, uh, uh, trained uh, uh, trained staff, uh, uh, the fact that uh, you know uh, you don't have uh, you know agreed upon 
uh, guidelines and some of the guidelines that are being used are actually so old and um, not mm. uh, looking at, at the common evidence-based actual practice. Yeah, so these are the common challenges that you're going to see really across across the LIMCs. But it's important to mention that even among them, there are some health institutions um, uh, where these efforts are, are being tried, despite the challenges that the countries face. Thanks, Marvin. I have another question for you. There's actually a few questions coming in for yourself, so right, yeah. stay with us for now. Um, so what are the specific roles and responsibilities of each team member in the multidisciplinary sepsis um, care team? Um, how can healthcare facilities ensure that all team members receive appropriate training and education in sepsis care to optimize outcomes? Yeah. So that can be for anybody. Yeah. Yeah, that's another another very good question. I think uh, one needs to needs to understand that uh, the concept uh, of working as clinical teams has not been a concept uh, that, for example, in the African region is so is so common. So you will not see, I mean, clinical rounds that are done, you know, with a doctor, with a nurse, a clinical pharmacist, a nutrition, an ID physician working together with a patient. That's, uh, you know, that's something that you don't commonly see. It's, uh, and so in terms of actually uh, uh, working as a core team and as a multi-stakeholder actually team, for patients, uh, it's something that you don't um, you don't see. And uh, one other thing that um, is a challenge uh, in uh, uh, most health institutions is that IPC and, and AMS are looked upon as added responsibility responsibilities for you know uh, the nurse, the pharmacist. Uh, they are not looked upon as key. Uh, you know, you know, um, as key actually components uh, of good clinical care, they are looked upon. You know, oh, I'm being given more responsibilities that I have to do. So that makes it very challenging to actually uh, work together. When you look at the decision making in terms of, uh, you know, what are the priorities? Um, that the hospitals actually need. Uh, some of these decisions are made by management uh, without very little consultation with the clinical care and looking at recommendations uh, that the clinical team are going to are going to make. And so you find that uh, these decisions are uh, then they don't take care, you know, the uh, uh, the necessary. Uh, requirements uh, that are critical to provide and prevent and, and you know, and promote uh, very good uh, uh, clinical, uh, yeah. uh, clinical outcomes. Yeah, so th these are some of the fundamentals and some of the things that can be, can be as disturbing as, you know, not having uh, uh, clinical uh, guidelines uh, that guide actually treatment, you know, and yeah. uh, chronic stockouts of antibiotics, yep. you know, so all these actually thanks. come together and makes it weak. Thank you. Yeah, thanks. Um, I think Kualdip wanted to come in there as well. Uh, yes, um, I, I'm glad um, Marvin has really started this conversation on uh, whose responsibility is it in the end. And I refer everybody to look at the Global Patient Safety Action Plan, which WHO has produced. And part of that is sepsis control is the number four item on its list. 
And within that, um, they've clearly stated that, personally, it's everyone's responsibility. You know, it's everybody's watch. But more particularly, the patient and the family engagement within these healthcare centers is very important. Plus, also within the uh, training of um, health professionals and educations. I remember, I'm very proud to be here for that reason that the World Health Assembly is coming up soon. Uh, I first met um, uh, the team from the Globe uh, Sepsis Alliance at the World Health Assembly when the idea of establishing that resolution was only being thought. And I'm glad this journey has begun. And at that, that stage, we had said, bring in the families. And I remember at the 2018 uh, World Health Assembly, we had got some excellent families there, you know, especially the yeah. uh, father with Rory's Law, you know, who really inspired yeah. the WHO. Uh, nurses from Ireland, I've forgotten her name. If somebody could give her, I needed to send a thank you to her because she really was good. Uh, as a nurse uh, and a patient, she really brought it forward. So, yes, it's everybody's responsibility. Yes, everybody's for watch. sure. And yes. uh, let's put that message across at this World Health Assembly again that uh, it doesn't mean that it belongs to somebody else. It belongs to us. Everybody. Yes, for Can sure. I add to this? Uh, Thanks. Yes, yeah. please. Come in. Yeah, so thank, I agree with all the comments mentioned by my colleagues. Um, for um, I, I think there are key um, issues for the multidisciplinary uh, approach. One is, to, one is the engagement of all um, shareholders from the beginning of uh, starting quality improvement project. We need to get the doctors, nurses, the primary doctors, ER nurses, everybody together on the table to understand what the issues that are particular to this place. Second is the leadership engagement. I think there is a lot of work we need to do to campaign for sepsis. So people yes. understand that sepsis is really a major uh, health threat um, and it, it can be improved a lot by uh, by all of us working together. The third point I like to emphasize is using data. There is no stronger yes. drive for people to change practice more than showing the their data. Uh, just um, I think giving a general statement will make some improvement for a short period, but sustainable change require that we provide data and. Uh, Having some type of indicators doesn't have to be too complicated to the teams um, uh, across uh, the healthcare setting. Let's remember that sepsis can happen anywhere in the hospital. So it can happen, it happens in emergency room, in on the wards, in ICUs, medical wards, surgical wards, oncology wards. So anybody, we need to really raise the point that any person who's taking care of inpatients and in fact outpatient as well, should have some basic uh, understanding of what sepsis means. So mm -hmm. being an orthopedic, you need to know when you to, to call for help. Uh, uh, you need to know the signs of early sepsis. Otherwise, getting a patient with sepsis with multi-organ failure to the ICU will not serve the purpose. We need to prevent this. And uh, uh, the best the best way to prevent morbidity from sepsis is to uh, prevent patients from becoming critically ill, really. Yes, for sure, yeah. Um, Amanda, there's a question here for you. 
Um, was the sepsis nurse an initiative from the nurses themselves? How did you manage to create this new specialization? That's a fantastic question. Um, <laughs> I think um, in relation to my role, per se, um, firstly, I'll speak of. So essentially that was a um, statewide position that doesn't that sits with um, children's health, but essentially it is an overarching role that helps um, individual hospital facilities um, with their implementation of the pathways, a lot of sepsis education, and then a lot of um, sepsis research that came out of that pathway implementation. Also around, um, I obviously have quite a, a special interest in, in nurses and nurses' role in recognition. Um, so we also did a study around knowledge translation of nurses, um, having previously perhaps had a little bit of arguably um, lower knowledge about sepsis and understanding on what it was um, and how we could get traction on that to see after yep. we implemented the pathway, good, did we actually get a translation to practice? Um, so that came from that. Then from there, we were fortunate in Australia um, to have a clinical care standard released last year. And with that has come about the importance and the recommendation for facilities to have sepsis clinical care coordinators for both paediatric and adult patients. Um, in Australia and in Queensland, our health system is quite individualised, although we do sit under a public sector. Individual health services, it's up to their executives, management, um, nurses, doctors to rally for that and say this is a priority, this is a role that we actually need. Some hospitals are much more successful than that than others and the same yes. is said for the implementation of the pathway. So I think looking at, as we've said, data, looking at root cause analyses, um, looking at, we used a lot of the, um, uh, the publications around and the WHO's priority around sepsis to rally some funding to say this is a priority, this really yeah. does affect um, paediatrics and adult patients, we really can do better. Um, it is something if we get on top of early, we can really change outcomes for patients. So using a lot of that language was certainly grabbed a lot of traction for some health services, some not. Um, COVID also happened, which put even more monetary budget constraints, but now coming out of the back end. That. Yeah, and the clinical care standard. We hope to hopefully get a lot of care coordinators in facilities that really can help patients with that continuity of care as well, and include discharge planning and family support after an yeah. event. Yeah, it yeah it it's been um like there's a, a well established sepsis national sepsis program in Ireland now, but it the challenge is convincing um the policy makers and, and the the purse holders that this is absolutely needed. Like. You, you don't have to convince a, a nurse or a, a clinician, um, rather a, a physician or a surgeon, like they're they're walking that walk every every single day. Thanks so much, Absolutely. Amanda. Um, Mervyn, another question for you. What is commonly available for treatment of carbapenem-resistant gram-negative bacilli in Africa? Uh, Clostin, for instance, is any of the new beta-lactams available? Um, for instance, keftazidine? And are they needed at this point? Um, thank you. Very. Um, a, a yeah. couple of questions there. <laughs> yeah. So, so I think the first question, you know, uh, uh, the first one is that uh, you know the the uh, the sort of uh, those a number of those are actually uh, quite out of stock in uh, uh, most of the countries. You would you would. Uh, not be able to find uh, uh, the third and fourth generations. You will not be able to find um, uh, um, even uh, 
you know, um, um, the uh, reserve group of antibiotics in uh, uh, most of the countries. So what, you know, so what ends up um, uh, really happening is that you, you have to use, uh, you know, the most, uh, the common broad uh, spectrum antibiotics that you have, even if when you are not sure that, you know, it, uh, it is actually, you know, uh, uh, the pathogen I'm dealing with is not sensitive, uh, but because, you know, you just don't have anything to use, you are going to use that. Where you can write a prescription and have the, you know, uh, uh, the family go out and buy from a pharmacy and bring it in, that's one option uh, that seems to work. But that is not an option that's going to work for actually for every patient. So we, um, they, are, they are also very, uh, uh, very heartbreaking actually situations where you know that whatever you have within the hospital um, is not actually the pathogen you're dealing with is uh, just not sensitive. And, and in those situations, there's nothing that you can do as a clinician. You, you, I mean, you just, I mean, you just have to cross your hands and, uh, you know, you know that the outcome that's going to come out of this is bad. And those are the most very difficult and extreme situations uh, that uh, uh, we find ourselves in and have been in these moments in different countries where, you know, you just don't have um, any alternative and there's nothing that you can do. I mean, your hands are tied as a clinician at that point. And, um, and also the, you know, the fact that you, you know, when we looking at, um, you know, at, um, you know, lab, uh, lab capacity and you being, uh, you know, I'm uh, uh, prescribing, you know, being guided uh, by, you know, um, uh, the evidence of us knowing that the pathogen we are dealing with uh, is X, Y, Z. A number of times we don't because yeah. our labs are just not, are just not functional. And so it's very difficult for you to be able to treat like that. And, you know, and it, it's sad that, uh, you know, and this can, you know, a number of these countries across, I mean, you see that in the private sector, you may be able to be able to identify uh, when you've got a good uh, uh, microbiology lab, but in public health institutions, uh, that remains a larger challenge. And sometimes by the time that uh, you get the culture results, uh, the patient is already gone. And so that's the reality that uh, uh, we, uh, uh, we deal with. And these are areas that I think as a global community, we need to really invest in. But I think for me, what is even just more disturbing is uh, the fact that in 2023, we have tertiary hospitals running with no clean running water in an institution. At the height of COVID, I worked in institutions where we completely had no water, yeah, wow. no hand sanitizers. And so, you know, they, this actually makes our hospitals to be great incubators of the most pathogen uh, uh, infections that we can. And sometimes we let our patients die because we can't do anything for them. Yep. Thanks very much. Um, Quality, did you want to come in here? Uh, yeah, yes, sir. Uh, I, I'm glad um, 
this is being brought up. Uh, I am also the chair of the African Medicines Agency Treaty Alliance, uh, which we formulated. And I think this is something we've been debating on that uh, as well through the country that really we need to look at how our hospitals are kept and how clean they are. But at the same time, we're also looking at something more important and critical at this stage, and that was AMR. Uh, we know there are new bugs coming up, and this means everybody, everybody's yes. hospital will be affected. Uh, yeah. And sepsis from one of these guys uh, seems like a, a nightmare scenario, and they're truly indicated as the next pandemic. We have to be aware, and, and that should bring in everybody again. If you need to have another bite at this cake um, on sepsis, then let's look at AMR and uh, use that as a... Uh, as a battering ram to get uh, high-level political attention on this. I think for that, we do need new antibiotics, uh, which is uh, the sort of fourth generation sort of things we wouldn't be able to sell, but we have to control. But at yep. the same time, it gives us the cost burden that this could incur. And that brings everybody back to the table. So yep. sepsis needs to be brought back. For sure. Thank you. Uh, another question on antibiotics. Multiple use of antibiotics and unexpected stoppages of antibiotics will affect the drug resistance or not. So will it affect the drug resistance or not? Yeah, I'll take a, there's a double edge sword here. Not only that AMR shortages, but also fake drugs. Yeah. You've got substandard uh uh, antibiotics running around uh, in many health systems and, and they creep and you'll be amazed. Even I am here in London outside Twickenham. We, we found some had crept into our own health system despite <laughs> we, we were so careful. So yeah, the supply chains get corrupted along the line and that's very important. Uh, I'm part of Fight the Fix. Uh, this is a international group that just got registered in Geneva um, two months ago. And we're really keen on this issue that uh, sepsis and, and fake drugs are almost like back to back in some countries. You know, it's very important to deal with this together. Yep. Uh, another question on um, antimicrobial stewardship. In the setting of patients with severe sepsis, when do we have to consider the use of mutant preventing dose of antibiotics rather than just MIC? Is that any variables that we need to seek first? Or are there any variables that we need to seek first? Well, I think maybe let me start and other colleagues actually can. You know, uh, uh, so I think firstly, um, and uh, uh, just to build on to what my colleague mentioned, I think one of the fundamental things we have to be clear about and we have to be clear with patients is that even when we use antibiotics optimally, any use of an antibiotic, um, you know, presents an opportunity for a pathogen to find a way to survive, which makes it worse when we use less or when we are overusing. But even the most rational use is an opportunity. So I think that is the fundamental one because, you know, uh, these pathogens are going to evolve. They'll find a way to survive. So even yes. when we use them right, it's just worse when we use them wrongly and uh, and actually uh, 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 suboptimally. Yeah, but I think that, you know, in, in answering this question, I think what is important is that uh, the, 
we have to have a correct diagnosis uh, when the patient presents. And unfortunately, most of the most most of the treatments that's going to occur in low and middle income countries are are going to be based on empiric therapy. And so, you know, it's not every patient that you're going to get um, any cultures or any blood tests for you to do that. But yes. even where you have the ability of um, really doing the cultures, they have to be done at the right time. And uh, we have to ensure that our health system is strong enough that, you know, uh, within actually 72 uh, hours or so, three to, you know, uh, three days or so, we we get the results. Uh, it's communicated uh, to the clinician who prescribes. We get back on the, the, the you know, uh, drawing board and see, is the patient on the correct pathway of treatment or not? But, yes. they, you know, they, they, they you know, the the challenge that uh, you know where you can't have um, you know the lab capacity that is required we are always shooting in the dark and that's where the challenges actually uh, evolve but even where we have um, uh, uh, the capabilities and capacities of uh, you know being able to get the cultures very early it's very important that. Uh, one, that the cultures are taken correctly. Uh, and number two is that the test uh, uh, is done well. There isn't any cross-contamination or, you know. Yeah. Uh, number three is that the results are communicated in a timely manner and fashion uh, to the clinician who should look back and say, okay, are we treating, you know, is this what we thought on day one we were treating? Otherwise, there will always be this sort of actually, you know, um, you know, uh, uh, breaks um, in our clinical care uh, uh, pathways. Yes, for Thank sure. You. Yes. Um, another question for any of our panelists. Um, for sepsis and antimicrobial stewardship campaign um, to be successful globally, do you think hospitals should have dedicated sepsis team and antimicrobial stewardship team working in coordination? I can take that uh, because I'm engaged with my hospital on the same kind of structure. Uh, it's very important that, yes, we do have patient and family engagement within this team. It's important the hospitals actually are what I call the gateway, um, both ways, yeah? Meaning yep. sepsis coming in, sepsis going out. So we can really yes. control those. It's very important to have that. Absolutely agree with the question uh, totally. Can I come in? I agree also about the uh, discussion. Sometimes uh, people may feel there's a tension between the AMR and sepsis. Sepsis try to focus on early empiric therapy, while AMR try to um, focus on the wise and focused use of antibiotics. But in reality, when the discussion between the two teams come together, I think they, they meet uh, nicely because appropriate uh, treatment of uh, antibiotic is one of the major goals of AMR. So I think these discussions are essential um, and that there's no contradiction between the two improvement projects. Yes, for sure. Yes, we've seen that in Ireland as well. In fact, when we first started the, the campaign, the sepsis campaign, there were concerns about um, increased use of uh, inappropriate antibiotics, but we haven't actually seen that. It's been uh, fairly static. And in some instances, it, it's actually reduced. Yep. 
if I can just add as well, I think if you've got yes. a, a guideline that obviously, you know, there's clinical assessment that comes into play in an emergency room, you know, you know, you're going off a suspected source, I think building in then appropriate mechanisms for de-escalation will certainly yeah. help with those. Yes, things. for sure. Yeah. Yeah, appropriate, you know, um, I think oral switch, step down, review with patients that aren't on antibiotics. Um, it's all well and good as well at 24 hours to say no bacteremia, they never had sepsis and, you know, we hear these things as well. But that, that also is not the case and we can't look at it like that because a clinician in the emergency room sees a patient that to them looks like they have organ dysfunction, that they have this suspected source, they require antibodies and that is completely appropriate at that time of assessment. But then the important part of that is then let's reassess and make sure we're doing appropriate measures when we have a little bit more yeah. clarity. So those two teams work together. Perfect. Yep. Um, do you think that sorry, antibiotic cycling rotation has any significant role in taming ARM, knowing that some bacteria will lose the resistant genes when the pressure is no longer there? And that's for any of the panel. Can you repeat the question, please? Uh, I'm not sure do you I, think I that it. antibiotic cycling rotation has any significant role in taming AMR, knowing that some bacteria will lose the resistant genes when the pressure is no longer there? Yeah. The antimicrobial um, resistance. Yeah, maybe I can take a step on that one. You know, so uh, uh, re antibiotic recycling um, normally occurs uh, in most times when uh, when patients or when mothers have not completed uh, giving the cost to a child or an adult has not completed. And so when they come and have an infection that they think that the symptoms are similar to what they, you know, uh, uh, they saw before. So, you know, they will, they will actually continue that. But they might also give another child or they might also give another adult in the family or a neighbor or a friend. And so you do have that sort of actually uh, uh, recycling. That's why, you know, it's, um, it's important to really understand. And that, you know, uh, sometimes there's a bit of some debate among us uh, uh, medical folks that, you know, should, you know, should a patient complete a course or, or not, you know, and that's a debate sometimes that rages in the scientific world. But I think suffice to say what is important and, and, and the message we should communicate is that, um, you know, is that, you know, I've prescribed uh, this antibiotic for you for this particular condition. And uh, what is given to you, you know, has to be taken, whether it's within three days or five days. You know, you have to complete your course. There shouldn't be anything that is left out. And you cannot use um, anything that you're leaving out, you know, to another, another family member or friend. Because every... Every exposure to really an antibiotic, uh, you know, is an opportunity for that particular bacteria to start finding a way of survival. Um, so I think that's what I would say about that. Thank you. I Thanks think very antibiotic much. cycling uh, also has been studied in a cluster randomized control trial and did not show that it really affected the prevalence of MDROs in hospitals. So I think the focus should be 
rather on de-escalation, on the short duration of yeah. antibiotic, uh, appropriate diagnosis, source control. Um, I think that's where the science stands at this point. Yep. So, um, can I ask Dr. A lot for you, a question, and, and it's more on um, your expertise around uh, brain injury. Um, like the, there's what we see in patients, and, and it's not necessarily on the rehabilitation, but it's on the early uh, diagnosis and, and recognition. But what we see with patients with altered cognition, for instance, ID, um, it, it's difficult to pick up on, on subtle changes. What would your advice be for people um, with altered co uh, cognition, for instance, ID or somebody with a, an acquired brain injury? Okay, thank you. Um, uh... Uh, Thank you. Just um, a clarification about acquired brain injury and cognition impairment. Yeah. Uh, no. The so it, it, sometimes it can be quite uh, difficult to pick up on the the subtle uh, changes in somebody with uh, um, uh, altered cognition in terms of early uh, recognition of, of sepsis. So, what would your advice be for that uh, somebody with a, an altered cognition, like somebody affected with severe uh, brain injury? Mm. Uh, yeah, um, actually, um, uh, for a recognized um, sign and symptoms sometime in uh, generally a rehab patient for sepsis, not only brain injury, as well in the spinal cord injury patient, um, the symptoms is different. And uh, usually we uh, try to educate our uh, team, like our resident physician who is dealing with the patient about the different in sign and symptom for rehab patient. Example, in spinal cord injury with complete paraplegia with quadriplegic patient, sometimes only the symptoms is increase in spasticity. And if we figure that uh, symptoms, sometimes autonomic dysfunction, spinal cord injury, and brain injury is similar, patient he can um, cannot complain sometimes about the, um, 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 his uh, situation, but we educate the family. The family is the key uh, um, 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 or the cornerstone uh, sometimes the patient and family and rehab as well the um, multidisciplinary team like even the physical therapy occupational therapy they uh, are educated how to deal with the patient and how is the patient sometimes deteriorated in physical therapy gym because he has some type of infection even the infection um, in rehab sometimes we have a patient an example uh, using endolytic um, polycatheter or um, um, uh, CIC um, uh, for a long time, um, we can um, um, deal with the patient or sometimes we deal with the patient with, uh, let's say, um, asymptomatic uh, infection, but if he got an infection, really sometimes we need help from ID, from the other medical team. But to uh, know the sign and symptoms usually is dif uh, different in those patients and need more education to the rehab team how to figure out this uh, changes in our patient, like cognitively impaired patient, stroke or brain injury, as well as spinal cord injury and sometimes uh, other uh, neuro patient like MS and others. Yes, Th thanks so much. And of course, very important to listen to family and um, somebody who's not just recently uh, acquired brain injury or uh, altered cognition. It, it's really important to listen to the people that actually know our, our patients. Thank you so much. Um, 
I'm going to wrap it up here now. Um, thanks so much to all our, our speakers. That was uh, very interesting, very thought-provoking and an insightful di discussion from all the panelists. Um, I just encourage uh, people on, online to please visit the World Sepsis website, uh, sign the World Sepsis Declaration if you've not done already, and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, LinkedIn, and TikTok. And thanks again to all the speakers and, of course, our, our, our sponsors. And I, I hope everybody um, enjoys the, the other sessions for the, the rest of the day. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening. Session 8 is already in the feed, and Sessions 9 and 10 will follow next Tuesday, May 30th.